Harry Roque is confident. Or at least, that's how he would want to appear. Bakit maghihimasok ang International Criminal Court na pinakita na natin na kayang-kaya ng mga lokal na institusyon na siyang mag-imbestiga sa mga krimen na ito? Because of complementarity, I am confident that the pre-trial chamber will reject the request for investigation. Flexing his credentials in international law, he boldly says, President Rodrigo Duterte will never cooperate with the International Criminal Court. This is not just a statement. It is also a signal to the ICC pre-trial chamber to try and discourage the body from authorizing an investigation into the drug war killings. State cooperation is crucial to the success of an investigation, and the Rome Statute provides that an investigation should serve the interest of justice. Non-cooperation had once been the basis of the ICC to reject investigation into Afghanistan. Although this had been overturned and an Afghanistan investigation is ongoing, Roque still likes to cite this case. It is not in pursuit of substantial justice. Bakit? Hindi na po tayo miyembro ng ICC. Ang karapatan at ang kakayahan ng hukuman para mag-imbestiga upang magsampan ng kaso ay nakasalalay sa kooperasyon ng Estado. Sinabi na po ng ating presidente, hinding-hindi tayo magko-cooperate dahil hindi na tayo miyembro ng ICC. But are all these a matter of defense? Prosecutor Fatu Bensuda leaves with a 6 out of 6 success rate when it comes to securing authority from the pretrial chamber to investigate. Will the Philippines and Duterte be her 7th for a perfect record? Hello, I am Lian Buan and you are listening to the Law of Duterte Land podcast where we discuss controversial policies of the executive, gaps in the law, and court decisions that shake long-standing principles in the legal profession. In this episode, we will talk to international law expert Param Preet Singh, the Associate Director of the Human Rights Watch International Justice Program. Pam has extensive experience in international justice for war crimes, crime against humanity, and genocide, and was part of missions in Bosnia and Herzegovina, Congo, and Côte d'Ivoire. My first question is about the woman of the hour, Patu Bensuda. Um, she succeeded uh, her former boss, Luis Moreno Ocampo. What has her reputation been in the last nine years that she was chief prosecutor of the ICC? Uh, well, nine years is a long time. Maybe I can focus on a couple of defining investigations that I think tell a story about the kind of prosecutor she was. Uh, she pushed ahead uh, with investigations in Afghanistan and in Palestine, despite really intense political pressure uh, not to do so. In Afghanistan, in part because the scope of the investigation included abuses committed by U.S. nationals, uh, and in Palestine because of Israeli's resistance. Um, but the fact that she moved ahead with those investigations, again, despite pretty intense pressure, which included sanctions by the U.S. under the Trump administration, I think says a lot about the independence, the spirit of independence and impartiality that she brought to her work as the prosecutor. So these vile words from President Duterte, I mean, even after she opened the preliminary examination, she called her, he called her names and then threatened to deport her. So this is nothing compared to the pressure she's been under in the different investigations that she's opened? 
I would say rather than making a comparison, I would say that it's part and parcel of the job. Um, and especially when it comes to holding officials who otherwise see themselves as outside of the reach of the law, holding them to account. All right. So Prosecutor Binsuda left us with really strong words. She said, Philippine officials planned and ordered the killings of the drug war. And there was a grand modus to target a specific segment of the population. When we read the report, it's a 57-page report, we can see that there were many citations to publicly available reports, not uh, also by HRW. In our process here, that can be called hearsay, and that's the line of the palace right now. What is the difference with a preliminary examination of the ICC? So thanks for that question. Um, and I can see where that would be a common misconception. The preliminary examination phase by its very nature, because it, it doesn't come with full investigative powers, it's restricted to publicly available information. And we're not talking about pinpointing specific individual accused, where I think the question that you're raising about possible uh, hearsay would be relevant. Here, we're just talking about establishing the context and the factual basis to justify the court's intervention because they've been there have been crimes that have committed in the court's jurisdiction. In this case, it's um, the crime against humanity of, of murder. Um, and that uh, so that the ICC has jurisdiction over the crimes. And you know, the request then is to actually move ahead with a full-blown investigation. And for that, she needs the permission of the judges to do so. So that can be called like a fact-finding mission. Yeah, fact-finding, establishing the scope to see if the ICC could even act if it wanted to. And here it seems like, again, the preliminary sort of boxes have been ticked. And so now it's about going into uh, whether or not the judges will allow her to move forward with a full investigation where she would be uh, examining evidence, pursuing evidence and leads to identify individual perpetrators. Right, so when we read the report, we can also see that there were many redacted um, information. Could we assume mm -hmm. that those are first-hand sources of the Office of the Prosecutor that they're keeping confidential at this stage? So I think that you can assume that there are reasons for the, that information to be kept confidential, whether or not it relates to first-hand sources. I mean, only the, the prosecutor can answer that question. But yes, generally when uh, applications like this are redacted, you can assume that the redacted information would somehow trigger security concerns for individuals or could compromise the investigation. Um, one thing that was glaring also to me in the report was the discussion of the nexus that she established between the individual act and the attack. Could you um, this, um, explain that more to the non-lawyers who are listening now? And why is that important to establish to establish that nexus? Sure. So again, in the preliminary examination phase, she's looking at publicly available information to figure out if the ICC could even act. Um, here, she thinks that threshold has been met. But then the next step is to figure out, you know, who's responsible. So the nexus is important because these crimes obviously did not take place in a vacuum. So it's about establishing individual responsibility for those, the commission of those crimes, because the ICC um, is a court that focuses on individual accountability. So then again, that's why the nexus question is important. Yes, crimes are committed, but who's responsible? That's the next step. As far as the history or the track record of the ICC is concerned, if three years of preliminary examination short or long? And um, how long are we looking at before the pretrial chamber decides whether or not to grant authorization? 
So in terms of the length of preliminary examinations, it really varies. It's really hard. I mean, Afghanistan, um, you know, that preliminary examination was much longer than the one for the Philippines, whereas a preliminary examination for Myanmar was shorter. Um, it really just depends, I think, on, you know, a number of factors. The office is juggling numerous priorities. I mean, it has a number of investigations open in other countries, and they have limited resources. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to say if it's long, short, or average. Uh, they take as long as they take. Um, in terms of the timeline for the judges to come back to her with a decision or to come back to the office of the prosecutor with a decision, generally, it's around three months. Um, it could be shorter, it could be longer. Again, you know, coming back to Afghanistan, it was over two years. Um, but that's very much an outlier. I think we can look for a decision one way or the other in the next few months. And if indeed an investigation is opened, how long are we looking at before the prosecutor, if ever, decides to ask for a someone or an arrest warrant? Well, you know, then it becomes a question of once the Office of the Prosecutor is granted full investigative powers, um, so full scope, full authority to fully investigate the situation and identify those responsible, then it's just an evidence game. You know, how long will it take them, the office, to compile the evidence to, in essence, prove the cases, identify and effectively prove the cases against those it's identified? And you have to remember that in Philippi the Philippines, no surprise to you, the government is not going to cooperate. They're not going to make it easy on the ICC. And so the court has to be really creative in investigating from the outside. Uh, and that, you know, that is certainly possible. It's been done in other situations, um, but it does add potentially to the timeline for, you know, when we can expect to see in, uh, arrest warrants. Right. So we have talked before with the lawyers of the uh, witnesses and victims of the drug war, and they have said publicly they're willing to cooperate with the ICC. So is that something that we can see if ever an investigation is going to be held, like maybe over Zoom or in whatever digital form that the OTP will talk to these people? So I think the, the bigger question is not how they'll, um, you know, it's, I think it's encouraging that people have indicated that they'd be willing to cooperate and provide information, but the ICC, the Office of the Prosecutor also has a duty of care to them to make sure that in taking them up on that offer, whether it's, you know, remotely or in person, um, that they're doing so in a way that wouldn't compromise them either in the moment that the interview is being recorded or you know longer term and that's you know even if victims and witnesses are willing to come forward um, it may be that the risks are too great and the ICC can't actually pursue um, those lines of inquiry so it really just depends on a number of factors. So the spokesperson for President Duterte Harry Roque he knows his international law and he's been citing Afghanistan time and time again because um at, at the first um, instance, the PTC denied authorization to investigate Afghanistan because of the lack of cooperation. Do you think it could be signaling also from our palace to the pretrial chamber that just don't open an investigation because we will never cooperate? I mean, they, you know, the government can signal as much as it wants to, and that's, again, not new information or not a new tactic. I mean, I think I can appreciate why he would uh, cite the Afghanistan pretrial chamber decision, but it was pretty definitively overruled at the appeals chamber in that, you know, it took into account inappropriate considerations um, in deciding not to open or not to allow the opening of investigation. So aside from that blip, um, for the most part, pretrial chambers have confirmed because the threshold is pretty low. 
Um, it's in essence to check to make sure the prosecutor has dotted the I's, crossed the T's, um, and to make sure that her request um, is in line with the terms of the statute, provided those that threshold is met. Um, you know, I, they will open uh, an investigation in the Philippines. So is it correct, six out of six of the requests for authorization have been granted thus far by the chamber? Uh, well, by the court, because Afghanistan was initially denied, and it was the appeals chamber that allowed the investigate that uh, gave permission to open the investigation. So at this point, even though we know that the drug war was a policy of President Duterte. There is no respondent yet. It's still a Philippine situation. Yes, um, although in practical terms, given that these were governmental policies, um, I would assume or expect that the Philippine government is scrambling to think about how it will engage with this and how it will defend itself um, in the months and years to come, should an investigation be opened. Um, is the ICC, uh, does the ICC always have its eye on the head of state or have there been um, cases where it's not the head of state, it's generals or it's lower ranking officials? Do they have interest in small fish? So the ICC, I mean, provided crimes in its jurisdiction, have been committed. It has jurisdiction over all of the fish. Um, but in terms of who, you know, those who it will focus on, honestly, it depends from situation to situation and the strategy for building up the cases. Because of course, you can't, you know, it's really complicated to start right off the bat with the head of state um, without the sort of underlying little fish evidence that comes out in trials um, that could be, you know, help you build up to, you know, that eventual prosecution. So it, it really just depends on the strategy and the evidence that's available, how much it's available, um, you know, what the strategy is for, you know, potential arrest and cooperation. Um, you know, there again, there are a lot of different factors, but yeah, I mean, it, just to reiterate the ICC, there, there is sometimes merit in going after smaller fish first in order to build up to the, the big fish. Sometimes it makes the most sense to make the most impact with limited resources to only look at the big fish. It just depends. Assuming that the our government cooperate. Is the investigation the level where the defense could be heard? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the hallmark of, of an effective justice process is a fair trial, and a fair trial requires a strong defense. So yes, 100%. Um, the ICC does not hold trials in absentia, meaning that the accused, in order to be tried by the ICC, has to be present. Assuming, for example, that an arrest warrant or an arrest order is made, um, could we assume that the person being arrested is the person who is going to be put on trial? Yes, yes, yes. The, and, and generally, you know, the, I think the practice at the Office of the Prosecutor has emerged that, you know, when you're requesting an arrest warrant for an accused, it's because you have the evidence to prove that conviction in court down the road. So, you know, it's signaling, you know, the beginning of a much longer process. It's not, um, it's not conditional. It's, uh, it's conditional and obviously getting the accused in the Hague. But, um, you know, once they're ready to go, they're ready to go. I want to go back to your point about how the ICC does not hold trial in absentia. Could you walk us through the process from investigation to the confirmation of charges? How does it move along? Sure. So... 
let's say, so let's say an investigation is opened, the ICC OTP, the Office of the Prosecutor gathers evidence, identifies, uh, you know, potential accused, submits an application for an arrest warrant to the pretrial chamber, which is either accepted or denied. Um, once those arrest warrants um, are issued, then um, let's say that the person in question is handed over immediately. It doesn't really matter when they're handed over. Once they're handed over, then I think within a set period of time, it's it's um, they have to make an appearance before the court, and then uh, there's a confirmation of charges hearing scheduled. And at that hearing, at every step, um, the threshold to prove the case is a little higher. Right. So the confirmation of charges hearing, you know, the pretrial chamber is really probing into the case that the prosecution has presented to determine whether or not there's sufficient evidence to move forward with the trial. And uh, assuming that that threshold is met, then there will be a trial schedule with the defense present. The defense is also present at the confirmation of charges hearing. Um, and, you know, we then it's a question of just the following the trial as it unfolds and then awaiting a verdict. I'm seeing that the enforcement of the arrest warrants depend on the cooperation of the, uh, the state's parties. And as you said, if there's no person in court, a, a, trial cannot uh, a trial cannot proceed. What's the incentive of these people to turn over themselves um, to the court? I mean, why not just hide in their country that does not cooperate? So, I mean, I think if you look at other situations before the ICC, indeed, that is a strategy for a long time for some suspects. But, it, you know, it's really hard to speculate as to what their motivations would be to turn themselves over um, or for people who, you know, seem outside of not just the reach of the law, but like literally the reach of the law because no one can find them. You know, they do find themselves, you know, in the dock in The Hague. Um, here I'm thinking of Bosco and Taganda, who was a notorious warlord in the Congo. Um, Radko Mladic, Radovan Karadic before the Yugoslav tribunal, you know, it took years for them to be, you know, arrested and handed over, but it did happen. So, I mean, I think in the abstract, it can seem impossible, but I think that's also the role of, you know, journalists and civil society groups and governments to just keep asking questions and putting pressure on you know, those who have the power to arrest and hand over suspects to underline why justice is important and raise the political cost for non-compliance. Before I go to the point of pressure, uh, some people have um, observed the timing because these uh, seeking of authorization comes while President Duterte is still in power. He's still very popular. Would there have been a value of just waiting um, until he... Um, steps out from office before this move was open? So the International Criminal Court, I mean, it's it's an impartial independent court and its mandate, um, you know, as part of executing that mandate, it's, its guide is the evidence. And I think in this situation in the Philippines, I mean, President Duterte's statements time and again um, have proven a lot. There's a lot of evidence in the public domain. I mean, leaving aside what's, you know, what's in the private domain or what others may share. There's a lot of evidence in the public domain to suggest that President Duterte, you know, he's worn this like a badge of honor, the drug war. He's worn it like a badge of honor um, and he's encouraged it. So, you know, to your question as to whether or not it would have been better to wait, I would say the other side is we can't wait because this person who's endorsing crimes against humanity um, is still in power. And this could potentially be a powerful message that that 
conduct is not acceptable and that there could be consequences for it. Right, so on pressure, the pressure seems to be United Nations Human Rights Council, the statements of both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International also put a spotlight on the United Nations Human Rights Watch, uh, United Nations Human Rights Council, sorry. What, what practical, um, in practical terms, what could a stronger move from the UNHRC bring to reinforce an investigation potentially by the ICC? That's a great question. So while I said that the ICC is um, a judicial body, it's motivated by the evidence, the Human Rights Council is a political body. And it also should be motivated by the evidence to raise political pressure on the Philippines, um, both to stop these murderous policies, but also to um, cooperate with the ICC and hold those responsible for, for their execution to account. Um, the Human Rights Council up until now, so last, uh, last fall during the session, um, you know, the, the High Commissioner for Human Rights issued a scathing report just detailing um, you know, the consequence of the government's policies on civilians, um, which I would say was largely, not that it was ignored, but it, it certainly wasn't addressed with the gravity that it required and the seriousness that it required. And instead of launching its own independent investigation, you know, launched into a partnership with the Philippines government for technical cooperation, which feels absurd for a government that has consistently denied that these abuses are even taking place and has refused to cooperate with any kind of independent investigation. So I think the ICC investigation um, is an opportunity for governments to reset and to rethink their approach to the Philippines instead of taking the path of least resistance um, and just you know, bowing to what the Philippines wants, the government of the Philippines wants. This is an opportunity for governments on the Human Rights Council to course correct and say, look, we're gonna stand, like even the ICC has said that they think that this is crimes against humanity. Uh, we, we wanna stand with victims and we wanna put pressure on the Philippine government to address the situation. And in terms of how that would support the ICC investigation, I think it would really up the pressure to cooperate with the court. But also remember the ICC investigation, the Philippines effectively withdrew in March of 2019 from the ICC's jurisdiction. So the ICC can only look at crimes from 2011 to March 16th, 2019. So a Human Rights Council investigation, in addition to upping the pressure, would also cover this gap because these crimes are continuing. Um, and there's no way for the ICC to touch them, so all the more reason for the HRC to step in. Uh, because there's a technical cooperation with, uh, with the UNHRC and the Philippine, Philippine government, are we looking at maybe uh, the ICC can have access to what the UNHRC has access to right now? I mean, in terms of records or maybe in terms of access to crucial officials? So that will really depend on the engagement. So let's say that there is an ICC investigation. Um, you know, it really depends on sort of, I think, concluding some kind of understanding with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights to determine what can be shared and what has to remain confidential. Um, but that's for them to, to sort out. But it's possible, yes. Okay, let's talk about complementarity because Again, Harry Rocket talks about this all the time, that the ICC should complement our national justice system. But also there's an issue of admissibility that for the prosecution to take 
um, jurisdiction of this case, it must prove that there's an inability and unwillingness to genuinely investigate these killings. So how can, um, can you explain to us how to reconcile honoring complementarity, but also taking off the boxes of admissibility? That's a really good question. Um, I think it's helpful to think of complementarity or what the ICC's approaches to complementarity. It's not an audit of the entire justice system in the Philippines. It may be that certain parts of the Philippine justice system work really well, but that is almost beside the point. What the ICC is looking at is whether or not the Philippine government or the Philippine authorities are looking at the same cases, the same individuals for the same conduct. And if they are, and those cases are genuine insofar as they're, you know, being effectively prosecuted, investigated and prosecuted, then complementarity, you know, that would trigger complementarity and the ICC would have to step back. But in requesting this, um, in requesting an investigation, they've made that preliminary determination that they don't think that the, the Philippine authorities are effectively, you know, they're not willing or able to try the cases that they want to try. And here, I mean, remember, this is, I mean, I don't need to tell you, you know, this better than anyone, that this is the government that's perpetuating these abuses. And so, you know, if you think about it through the lens of a government that's proudly per perpetrated these abuses, holding itself to account, it feels pretty unlikely. What's the prospect for Karim Khan? What is his um, reputation in the international community? So he, you know, he's, he's made it very clear. I mean, he was elected by, you know, by the states because, because of his record and because of his commitment to the ICC's mandate. Um, what that will mean to the ICC, I think only time will tell. Um, because, you know, we definitely, you know, want, to, want him to continue the outgoing prosecutors to independence and impartiality. Um, but, you know, it's for him now to shape the next nine years of the court's effectiveness across situations. Prosecutor Binsuda said it herself, the ICC is at a crossroads and in her statement, she did call for a reflection from the ICC, from the partners, from the member states. Where does the Philippines fall in that crossroads and how will that crossroad impact the future of seeking accountability for the drug war killing? So I think the fact that she sought this authorization and made it public on the eve of her departure says that she doesn't want the Philippines to fall between the cracks because of the, the gravity of the situation there. Um, I mean, in terms of the crossroads, it's, it's true that the ICC, you know, the demands for justice, justice have only grown, but unfortunately its budget has not. And so, you know, there's only so much that it can do with the resources that it has. And I think in her outgoing message, she's really signaling that governments need to step up. Uh, justice isn't free, <laughs> um, but the cost of impunity is far higher. All right, so I'm gonna follow up with that question, with my last, uh, with that answer, with my last question. There's been a lot of cynicism about how effective this ICC would be, but how do you think this procedure for the Philippines would help us improve our justice system and improve um, our the, the the fight for accountability a lot better? So. You know, I think that there is real potential, should an investigation go forward, to really spotlight, you know, I think not certainly some of the deficiencies in the cases up until now, to really puncture a hole in the impunity that has, you know, enveloped the Philippines 
over the last four years and even before that. Uh, and so even just by signaling that and by trying, let's say it, you know, tries a handful of emblematic cases or a handful of, you know, very, you know, senior officials, you know, that could open up the space for a robust uh, reaction uh, or rather a, a robust trials uh, at the national level. And it also could spotlight, like I said earlier, deficiencies that, you know, either the government of the Philippines should address or it, with the help of other donor governments. But really, you know, making that accountability picture, adding to the clarity of the accountability picture in terms of who's responsible, but also what else is needed, I think can only help the Philippines justice system moving forward. Sorry, that wasn't my last question I had. <laughs> Uh, the justice, sure. Supreme Court justice in charge of the petition seeking to declare our drug war unconstitutional. He's going to be retiring in June 30, and the Chief Justice said they're hopeful that there could be a decision before June 30. And saying that there is, and the pretrial chamber has not acted on the request of Prosecutor Bensuda, would a Supreme Court decision impact the pretrial chamber's decision-making process for the investigation? Um, I mean, I think it's it's certainly relevant in their assessment, but, you know, I think it could also signal that, yes, this drug war is unconstitutional, but it still doesn't address the question as to, you know, what steps has the Philippines taken to hold those responsible to account. And that's ultimately what complementarity is about, and that's what this process, you know, both the, you know, up until uh, when the judges make a determination on whether to open an investigation and even once an investigation is underway, you know, to what extent is the Philippines willing and able to hold officials responsible for these murderous policies to account? That was Parampreet Singh, Associate Director of the Human Rights Watch International Justice Program. I am Lian Wan. Thank you for listening. Follow us on our social media accounts for more news, videos, and podcasts. Listen to Rappler's podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and wherever it is you get your podcasts.